So we're going to do a few a, a few random pieces. Maybe maybe somehow at the end we'll try to tie tie it all in together. Uh, but a few random pieces on Purim as we're getting closer. I don't think we did some of these things that I want to do tonight. I don't think we did them last year. If we did, then forgive me. If we did, and you remember that we did it last year, then that's pretty wild. But um, but still, the first thing I wanted to do is talk about obviously the uh, the famous idea that Hashem's name is not mentioned anywhere in the Torah, and. Chazal teach us that the Gemara says that Esther menatarim inayin. Where do we see Esther in the Torah? So the the the, the Gemara quotes a pasuk, aster, aster panay, that the, that Hashem said, I, I hid my face. And all this far, Rabbi Nachman talks a, a lot about the hastara shabetaycha hastara, the hiddenness that's hidden. The idea, Rabbi Nachman says that that the the lowest place on earth is when a person feels that the hiddenness that they have from God is hidden, which means essentially the person does not realize and recognize any pain. A person doesn't see the darkness. A person doesn't feel that which is negative, that which is broken. He or she thinks that life is just hunky-dory the way it is. So the, the Hester, Shabbatoycha Hester, is somehow revealed through Esther, that Esther does two things. She reveals that God is hidden, and she unveils the hiddenness of God. So it's two things. There's two, there's two madregas that Esther brings out. So a few years ago, I was learning the Sefer. It's become my favorite Sefer to learn on, on, Sefer, on, on the Megillah. That is the Sefer from, from the Kamar Nerebra, the Sefer is called Kesem Ophir. It's a, it's, it's a mixture of a lot of Hasidus and a lot of Kabbalah. And I saw a line in there that really blew me, blew, blew me, blew my mind, like into a million in a million pieces. And um, I think I probably shared it with you guys last year, but this year I was thinking about it even more. And that is that the Kamarna says that the that the the most hidden place that God has found is in that which is revealed. It's not that we, we celebrate the hiddenness of God in Nisim, in the deeper realms of reality, but Hashem is hidden in Teva itself, which essentially means that Hashem isn't really hidden. Hashem is revealed. But that's the mystery of all. So I want to read a poem by Shel Silverstein. And if anybody remembers who Shel Silverstein is, or if you know who Shel Silverstein is, he was, he was a, a, a poet. Uh, when I was a kid, I read a bunch of his poems, not realizing the godless of his poetry. But now that I have kids of my own, Bar Hashem, um, They've grown out of his books, but I, I, I read his books now because some of his poems are just so brilliant. So I'm going to read this out loud because it, I think it, it, it makes a point. The poem is called No Difference, and it goes like this. I shared it on the screen. Small as a peanut, big as a giant, we're all the same size when we turn off the light. Rich as a sultan... Poor as a mite, we're all the same size 
when we turn off the light. Red, black, or orange, yellow, or white, we all look the same when we turn off the light. So maybe the way to make everything right is for God to just reach out and turn off the light. So there's something about that that, that just jumps out. No? Maybe the way to make everything right is for God to just reach out and turn off the light. And so if you see, I wrote some of my notes underneath that. The Oscar Wilde said, the true mystery in the world is the visible, not the invisible. I think what he's referring to in this poem is not darkness. For God to reach out and turn off the light is not darkness. There's a space between turning off, between light and darkness, right? Light, when we think of light, we think of like transcendence. We think of like things that are way beyond. We think about like, wow, life is so beautiful. It's so amazing. When we think of darkness, we think of pain. I think what he's referring to, if I can be my eye and hative into Shel Silverstein, what he's trying to say is that sometimes we have to turn off our own lights. Sometimes we have to ask God to turn off our lights. Sometimes we have to stop yearning so much. It's so easy to overlook God. You search and search and search and search and search and search, and you keep searching and searching and searching and searching and yearning and, and yearning and yearning and craving and needing and wanting. And sometimes you overdo it. Sometimes it's like, just sh shut up. <laughs> shut your mind up. Stop searching. Like, Hashem is right here. Mom is right here. And sometimes when we ask Hashem to reach out and shut the light off, what we're saying is, don't make it, don't make it so big. Don't make it so mighty. Don't make it so, you know, crazy. Hashem is right here. The whole story of the Megillah is really one without much light. There are a few, like, you know, pivot points where, where it's actually very cool. Like Mordecai sits with... See, so sitting outside, and he overhears Big Son Vesera. She hears that, okay. Later on in the story, it comes back. Haman brings Mordecai through the streets. It really, the truth is, if you, if you listen to that part of the story, it's almost an irrelevant part of the story. Like, what does that have to do with anything? Mordecai doesn't save Kal Yisrael. It seems to be it's an irrelevant part of the story, but it's there. It's kind of one of those things that just makes the story more interesting. It's really cool. There are very few things that happen that make the entire story work. But it's a story. It reads like a story. It flows like a story. I'm not the greatest uh, or the most knowledgeable about the rest of Nach, but there are very few stories in all of Tanakh that are told with such detail where everything, everything just kind of fits. There's, you don't really need to learn any medrash to understand the story. The story just flows on its own. And I think what the Kamarna means when he says that Hashem is hidden in plain sight, what he means to say is, don't look beyond the story. Look at the story itself. Don't look, you don't need to look beyond the flowers to see the maker of the flowers. Sometimes you have to appreciate the flowers for what it is. And that's what it means to appreciate God. I know that might sound blasphemy, but I'm not talking about removing God from the picture. What I mean is, is that there's an element to Simcha 
Mishinichnas Adamarim Basimcha, there's an element to Simcha that has to do with simply just being able to appreciate that which is. To be mindful, to be able to sit in the moment and appreciate that which is, that which exists. Nothing more, nothing less. So maybe the way to make everything right is for God to just reach out and turn off the light. Turn off the light. Don't, we don't need anything big. It doesn't have to be anything grandiose. It doesn't have to be anything transcendent. It simply has to be the ability to sit and appreciate. If you look at the other, the other paragraphs here, he juxtaposes peanut with giant. He juxtaposes sultan with might. Red, black, or orange, yellow, or white. Everything seems to be juxtaposed. But when you turn off the light, we're all worth the same. We're all the same size. We all look the same. Because when you learn to appreciate and drop down a madrega underneath all of the trappings of the things, the cravings, the wantings, the needs, the, the, you know, all the things that we're pulled by, we're able to just simply sit and be with ourselves and be with each other and be with Hashem. And I think that's, the, that's maybe a fine introduction to reading through the Megillah to try to to try to just read the story for what it is. And even though we're going we're gonna to talk about some Ramazim that are found here in the story, but what we're really trying to do is to just recognize that everything in life can be appreciated for simply what it is. If we can quiet our minds enough, we could quiet our hearts enough, we can attune ourselves to ourselves. You know, I think I said this last week, it doesn't mean you have to be besimcha. means you have to increase. Whatever madrega you're on in life, you have to increase simcha. So somebody, somebody in my office today said to me, what do you mean? Well, I, I, I don't feel happy. What are, you making, what, are you, what are you asking me to be happy about? As I said to him that to be tamid besimcha, to always be happy, doesn't mean to always experience joy. It means to treat your emotions in a healthy way. When you treat your emotions in a healthy way, that's a bechina of happiness. Happiness is not the mood of joy. Happiness is the overall arching uh, framework for with for which we treat ourselves emotionally well. When we treat our emotions well, that means we are activating simcha. Sometimes that's grief. Sometimes we can experience grief. Sometimes we can experience sadness. That's fine. You can experience sadness with simcha also. That's not a contradiction. It's when you treat yourself right. It's when you when you connect with your emotions and you can attune to them, you can validate them, you can encourage them, you can encourage yourself, you can be connected to yourself. All of those things, when you're healing emotionally, when you're taking care of yourself emotionally, that's called simcha. Adar is a month where we increase simcha. And that kind of leads us into a discussion about Moshe Rabbeinu. Because tonight's the art side of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Zion Adar. The Gemara says that when Haman spun his 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 gyrol, he spun his lottery. So he saw that he, fa- he the lottery landed 
on the month of Adar, and he was thinking to himself, oh, Moshe Rabbeinu died in Adar, it's probably not a good, not, it's not a good month for the Jews, Moshe Rabbeinu died in Adar, they lost the light of Moshe Rabbeinu, we lost the light of Torah, we lost the light of our Rebbe, so it's probably a good thing. And the Gemara says, of course, but he didn't realize the secret that Moshe Rabbeinu was also born in Adar. And that's a, that's a deep Indian, what it means that a tzaddik is born on the same day that he dies. What essentially what it means is, is that the day is his, both in birth and in death. The day somehow, the day of the yard site, the day of the birth, when, when they come is one and the same, it somehow means that there's some element about that day that we don't realize. So I'm going to try to put this down, and then and then hopefully we'll get we'll get into the into the Megillah itself to try to explain this Indian. It's a little bit all over the place, but but I think it's I think we can we could put it into into one. In my mind, it's all one. So hopefully I'll be able to explain this in the deepest way, but in in a, in the clearest way. Shabbos morning, we say, Yismach Moshe b'matnas chelkai, ki evet neman karasalai. We say, Moshe Rabbeinu was happy, he was happy with what he received, ki evet neman karasalai, because he's called an evet neman, he's called a, 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 a servant of Amuna. He serves God with faith. So the obvious question for anyone is, if Hashem chose me to be Moshe Rabbeinu, of course I'd be happy. Of course I'd be happy with my chilek. What do you mean? Like, it doesn't sound like a chiddush to say that Moshe Rabbeinu was happy with what he got. What do you mean? He was raised in the house of Paroi. He rejected that. Hashem chose him. He was, in, in terms of the Jewish people, he was from the top three most influential people that ever lived. He led he led all of Klai Yisrael. He met God face to face. He brought the Torah down. I mean, of course he's happy. What, like, what, what do you expect? Give, give me four, $400 million and I'll, I'll figure out how to be happy. Not such a big deal. And what does it mean that he's happy with his chilek? I mean, you want to tell me he's happy, that's fine. But Moshe Rabbeinu does not seem to be the person, the quintessential person that I'm going to turn to and say, ah, oh, He's a Sameach B'chelkai. So of course you have to flip it on its head and say it the other way around. It's not that Moshe Rabbeinu was happy with what Hashem chose him to be. It's that Moshe Rabbeinu personified himself. He, 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 he personified in his life this experience of Simcha, and it was that that Hashem saw in him that he chose Moshe Rabbeinu. So the Yismach Moshe Bamanaschalkai preceded Moshe the, the Rebbe. It was Moshe the person. That somehow Moshe Rabbeinu had this ability to be happy with what he has. And what does it mean to be happy with what he has? So all of us are familiar with this already. What it means is that he understood that happiness is not situational. Happiness is not dependent on the things that happen to me. Happiness is within me. It's unconditional. It begins before we engage the world. 
happiness is the kind of thing i mean people use language like saying happiness is an attitude happiness is a choice i don't know how simple those the, those phrases are i think it's actually pretty hard to like be happy but happiness itself begins within it's born within it's born on zion Adar, and it ends within in other words Moshe Rabbeinu being born on Zion Adar and Moshe Rabbeinu dying on Zion Adar and Adar being the month of Simcha, all of these things all have to do with the same Indian of Simcha. Simcha starts within and Simcha ends within. It's all up to me. It's all my process. If I'm unhappy in life, it's my job to figure out what I need to do to get there. It could take years, it could take decades, that's fine. But it's up to me. The moment I start to blame other people for my unhappiness, I'm, I, people do terrible things and we, we experience trauma. There's no doubt about that. I'm not, I'm not saying that there isn't such a thing as the ability to, dis, to, to destroy someone. I'm also not saying that, that loving, being in a loving relationship with friends, with, with a spouse, that these things don't, don't enhance happiness. But essentially, resiliency in life begins with happiness. What makes the difference between my ability to deal with my disappointments in life or not? Happiness. What gives me the capacity to accept my friends' shortcomings and the things that, that are done to hurt me? Happiness. What affects my ability to appreciate that which I get versus that which I have a hard time with? Happiness. Etc. 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 I was thinking of a title, a title for a shear. I don't have the time to put it together, but but the question here is a question that I had. Happiness is certainly an experience. It's certainly a psychological experience. Is there a religious value to happiness? I, I'm not asking whether or not religion enjoys happiness, or or whether or not we're like you know, happiness positive. But is there a value to religious? When we say, is that a good suggestion? Or is there actually a religious value called happiness? And when we say that we should be happy with what we receive, is that a, is that a commandment that Hashem is saying, do it this way? Or is there something more, more, is there something bigger than that? And of course, I think there's something bigger than that. The idea that Hashem tells us that he wants us to be happy doesn't mean that Hashem is saying, you have a mitzvah, be happy. Happiness is not one of the Tayyag mitzvahs. There are, there are, there are mitzvahs that, that we're supposed to be happy doing, for sure. But since this is the month of Simcha, what we have to talk about is, what is the religious value of Simcha? So, of course, there are many strategic things that happen that Simcha could bring us. But the first thing we have to recognize is that Simcha begins within. It, it's, it, it's born within and it dies within. It begins within and it, and it, is, and it ends within. And it's our job in life to be, to be on top of our own Simcha. We, we dedicate an entire month out of the year dedicated to the work of Simcha, of what, sim, of what Simcha means, what it does, how I work on it, and what, what the importance of it is. So what does that mean? 
So we define simcha many times that simcha means that which is most when when I'm experiencing life in tune with myself. The more I experience life in tune with myself, the more happy, the more the more simcha I experience. That happiness is alignment. Happiness is is the result of me being aligned with all the parts of myself. Like when I experience more unity within, when I experience more wholeness within, I have more happiness. When I experience more fragmentation within, I have less happiness. Anything in life that brings me closer to, to a yichud, to a wholeness, to a shlemus within, that is falls under the category of happiness. That which separates me, that pulls me apart, that, that creates fragmentation, that is the opposite of happiness. Moshe Rabbeinu's midah in life, the first midah, the first understanding of Moshe Rabbeinu, is this concept of simcha, of being in line with the essence of who he, of who he is. And that's what Hashem chosen him, that's what Hashem wanted from him, and it's only through that that Hashem said, you're the one who's not just going to bring a, a, um, an exodus, a Yeshua, a Geula from Golis, you're not, that's not the only thing you're going to do, you're also going to bring Torah down into this world. You're going to bring my light down into this world. You're going to bring a light that's going to affect all of reality down into this world, the Torah. Because both of those things, Yitzhiya Mitzrayim and Torah, both of those things need to be understood in the context of Simcha. Both of, the, both of those things are part of the continuum of Simcha. Number one, Gu'ula, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty clear. Gu'ula is when I need a Yeshua, when I'm down in the dumps, when things are broken, when I, I get confused with wondering whether or not I'm good enough, when I get confused whether wondering whether or not I matter enough, when I get life sending me messages through all different vehicles and all different angles that I'm not good enough. I keep messing up and I keep proving to myself I'm not good enough. There are, there are either real or imagined captors that keep me enslaved, that keep me down. I need to find the Pesach. I need to find the light. I need to find something that's going to bring me out of that. That ability to go from darkness to light, Gula, that's Simcha. Darkness is all fragmentation. Simcha is all creating more unity, to be more aligned within myself, to be more aligned with my neshama, to be more aligned with Hashem, that I could bring all of the parts of myself together into one thing and connect them to Hashem. Rav Kook, Rav Kook he doesn't, I haven't seen it exactly like this, but it's, it's pretty clear that the whole Indian of tshuva might not even be that I say to Hashem, like the Rambam says, I'm never going to do this again. Tshuva begins when I, when I let go of the fragmentation that my Averas bring. My Avera brings a fragmentation within me. I, I feel like I'm on the outskirts, like 
now I'm, I've gone out of town. Like the Gemara says, if you want to do an Aver, you have to go out of town. You got to go somewhere far, dress in black clothing. Nobody should see you. Do what you have to do and then come back. It's, it's, also, it's also a metaphor because when we mess up in life, it tends to be in a way where we're ashamed and we do it alone. We do it in, in loneliness. We do it hidden. We do it away from the rest of the world. That's fragmentation. Tshuva is the ability to bring that which I just did back into the light of my own soul, back into the light of my psyche, back in front of Hashem, to say to Hashem, yes, I just did this. I am not hiding from you in this moment. That's tshuva. That's one, it's, that's one of the, the first earlier stages of tshuva before you get to what the Rambam talks about. So that geula brings simcha, that geula happens through simcha, that's fine. That, that, that makes sense. <clears throat> but the Torah, the Torah bringing simcha, that's, that's challenging. It's challenging because most of us relate to the Torah as being that which Hashem wants us to do. Na'asa v'nishma. Na'asa. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. To the un the uneducated to the unsophisticated, the Torah seems to be just about doing what you have to do. The more you do, the more you're in line with the essence of who you are. The more you're in line with Hashem. The less you do, the, 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 the more distant you are from Hashem. <clears throat> that your value in life is dependent on what your performance, what you're able to do. That could could bring a certain kind of simcha that could bring the kind of simcha that says, well, if I do enough, then I'll be close to Hashem. If I don't do enough, I won't be close to Hashem. What's the problem with that? The problem with that is we're talking about being Samech B'chelkai. If you're being Samech B'chelkai, then that means you have to learn how to be happy with whatever you've just done. You have to be happy. You have to be happy with what you've received, and you have to be happy with your flaws, and you have to be happy with your character defects, and you have to be happy with your failures. You have to be happy. Happiness means that you don't reject anything from yourself. Everything has to be part of the picture of who you are. You have to know how to stand in front of Hashem, completely proud of everything about yourself, even the things that are not worthy of being proud about. You have to, I'm not proud, I mean vulnerable. You have to be able to stand naked in front of Hashem with all the things, all the flaws, all the, the, the positives, all of it. That's what it means, Samech B'chelkai. So you can't say that the Torah is just about what you, what you, what you have to do for God. It's got to be more than that. So everybody knows the Gemara. The Gemara says, now, when it came to Har Sinai, when Moshe Rabbeinu brought the Torah down, right before Moshe Rabbeinu brought the Torah down, when Hashem was going to introduce himself to Kal Yisrael, and he was going to introduce Anoich Yashem so the Gemara says, Hashem lifted up the mountain like a barrel, and he held it over their head, and he said, if you, if you accept my Torah, good, and if not, I'm going to bury you right here doesn't sound very uh, um, beautiful, doesn't sound very transcendent. It sounds very threatening. 
So the Zayar Kaddish says that Har is a lotion of love. In other words, Hashem didn't threaten us. Hashem seduced us. Hashem revealed himself in such a way that it was not possible for any human being to not be completely smitten and not say Nasev and Ishma. It was seduction. It was something that, uh, you know, could be looked at in a certain way as being manipulative. In fact, we know we've talked about this, that when Kalei said Nasev and Ishma, so later on in the Gemara, the Gemara quotes a guy saying, you guys are impulsive. Who gave you the right to say something so impulsive? You just accept the Torah. So when the Torah was given, we know that the, the giving of the Torah is called Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. And then the Gemara says famously, yes, but on Purim, we re-receive the Torah. Purim was like a new, a new, there was a new acceptance of the Torah. What's the difference between Shavuos and Purim? What's the difference between what happened at Harsinai when Hashem gave us the Torah and what happened on Purim when we received the Torah again? So the difference is like this. One, there's many, many ways. There's many Sfarim, many ways, many different Mahalchim in understanding this. But for our sake, we're going to look at the difference between giving and offering, taking and receiving. And, and it goes like this. Matan Torah is the giving of Torah. When I give you something, my giving is an assertive act. And sometimes I could give to you in a way where I don't really care whether or not you're taking it or not from me. I don't care. I'm giving it to you. What you do with it is kind of meaningless to me. I'm giving it to you. By Matan Torah, what Hashem said to Kal Yisrael is, I'm giving you the Torah. And Kal Yisrael took it. Okay, fine. When you when you go through all the nisim the nisim gluim that happened in you know with the with the ten makos and we got kind of got reeducated to who we were with the children of Yitzchak and Yaakov and the shvatim and we're reminded of the history and the glory of who those people were and we go through makos Bukharis and we run out of Mitzrayim and we go through Kriyas Yamsuf and we see all the nisim with the the fire and the clouds and all this kind of stuff when Hashem says I'm giving you the Torah. Yeah, okay, we got it. You got it. You're giving it, we're taking it. No problem. Hook, line, and sinker. No problem. But there was something about the Torah then that didn't have a full shlemus. There was something then about the giving of the Torah that didn't have a full shlemus that until the story of Purim happened, nobody even realized that there wasn't a full shlemus. In other words, from the moment that Kalei Yisrael got the Torah in Harsinai, until the end of the Megillah, until the end of the Megillah, the end of the story in the Megillah, nobody knew that there was still more to receiving the Torah. The reality of life at that, at that time, from that whole Tkufa of Matan Torah until the end of the story of the Megillah, is all one big giving and taking. Hashem gave the Torah, 
we took the Torah. Both of those acts are assertive acts. In a certain way, it's a blurring of boundaries. It's a blurring of boundaries. I'm giving you, Hashem says, I'm giving you the Torah. Everybody died. Hashem held the mountain on top of their head. They couldn't manage. It was, it was a giving that went way beyond any of their senses. It was big. It was, it was transcendent. It was amazing. It was above and beyond. And Hashem, and Yisrael's reaction to that was to take it, to take it with a, with a strong hand, to take it, to own it, to make a big deal out of it, to build it, to grow it, to cultivate it, to live it, to move with it, to spend our whole life tinkering away at it. Until the story of Purim. And the story of Purim, there was a whole new experience on this planet with the Torah. There was a whole new relationship that was added. There was a whole new layer of human interaction with God. And that is that at the time of, of the story of Purim, Klai Yisrael said, we're not taking the Torah anymore. And, and I want to talk about that for a few minutes. Klai Yisrael said, we're not taking the Torah anymore. Now we're going to receive it. And Hashem says, if you're not taking the Torah anymore and you're going to receive it, then I'm no longer giving you the Torah. I'm offering it. And now everything, everything, everything changes. Everything changes in that moment. Because it's no longer about assertion. It's now about something completely different. It's about merging. When I assert myself with you, and you respond by asserting yourself with me, you and I are not merged. When we don't become one through that. When I'm assertive with you and you're assertive with me, we're essentially, I'm going into your territory, you're going into my territory, and we're kind of like this. We're, we're, you know, I gave you the Torah, I receive your Torah, great, no problem. In a certain way, you could say it's, it's like the, the madrega of an Eved, an Eved, an employer, a slave, the, the boss wants you to do something, you do it, great, no problem. If I offer something, that means I am saying to you, you can take it or not. That's okay, but I'm offering it to you. I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to what I'm offering. The ball's in your court. When I receive something from you, I am not taking anything from you. I am not taking it with any assertion. I'm simply receiving your invitation. And in that way, we become one. There's much, much more of a yichud. There's much, much more of a unity of emerging when I receive from you as opposed to take from you. When I take from you, it has my own agenda. I'm taking. When you give to me, it has more of your agenda. You're giving. When I receive from you, my agenda is gone. My heart's open, and I'm just receiving. <sighs> The Gemara says that on Purim, we re-received the Torah. We received the Torah, that which, we, that which we had already received before, we received again. But the whole Indian of the story of the Megillah is that we received now. Now we receive. We, we turn everything off and we receive. We turn off the light and we receive.
That's why Hashem's name is not found anywhere in the Megillah. That's the story of Maish Rabbeinu. The story of Maish Rabbeinu is, Maish Rabbeinu is called the Anav Mikal Adam. The story of Maish Rabbeinu, I'm going to stop sharing the screen, sorry. The story of Maish Rabbeinu is the story of a person who, in Panemius, wanted to just learn how to receive. The world wasn't ready for that. So Hashem gave the Torah, Kal Yisrael botched it up with, with, uh, with the Chayte Egel, and there's a whole back and forth. Should we give another one, not give another one? Okay, all of that stuff, fine, 100%. But the whole story of Megillus Esther is one of reception. It's one of not seeing Hashem. It's not high. It's not mighty. It's not deep. It's not meant to be deep. I'll, I'll peep shot, as we'll, we'll see hopefully hopefully in a minute or two. It, it's obviously the deepest. It's like one of the deepest. It's not the deepest of the deep. Shir Hashim is probably the deepest of the deep, but it's pretty close to it. The story that we lane is a story that reads like, like any other story. It's very simple to receive it. It's not something that requires much assertion. And even the entire story, as we'll see in a minute, that takes place, the, the, the pivot of the entire story, which is something that doesn't seem to be such a big deal, but the pivot of the entire story of, of, of Krias Megillah, the entire Purim story, happens in such a way that it's, it's very simple. There isn't really much explained about why this, that. It's not high, it's not deep, it's not low. Nothing bad happened to the Jews during that time. It was a decree. There was a decree that something bad was going to happen. And turns out nothing bad did happen. Nobody got killed. Nobody got hurt. There was no plague. There's no kinnis that we have to say over the, 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 the six million that died. Nothing. Nothing but nothing. There was, there was a little blip on the radar screen in Jewish history where it seemed as if there was a possibility that the Jewish people would get killed. It didn't happen. There was no, it didn't snow that day, even though the forecaster said it would happen. There was, there was a big you know, pandemic, nobody died. And, and fine, obviously it's obviously not like, not like coronavirus, but nobody died, nothing happened. It would seem to be, it, it would be a story that seems to have nothing to do with anything. So this farm explained to us that the Yom Toivim, especially Hanukkah and, 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 and Purim, the Yom Toivim themselves are not commemorating what happened on that day. And this is, this is what, where I want to try to circle back to what I was saying about Simcha. It's not that the story of Purim happened and therefore the 14th day of Adar, we celebrate the, 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 the memory of Haman and Mordechai and Esther Nachashverosh. That's not the story. The story of Purim is Yudalit Adar always meant something from the beginning of time. We just didn't know what it meant. Our tzaddikim knew from the beginning of time that Chaf Hei Kislev, there was some premius to that day. Yudal Adar, there was some premius to that day. So 
somehow, somewhere, the month of Adar, this time of year, this exact date on the calendar, there's some mystical experience of Simcha that comes into the world. And that Simcha is something to be celebrated from the beginning of time to the end of time. It took until the story of Purim for us to understand the details of what it's all about. This, the Purim story is a sign, an explanation to us. This is what, what it is we're celebrating on Yud Dalet Adar. Or it's really Yud Aleph through Tesvav. Yud Aleph, Yud Beis, Yud Gimel, Yud Dalet Tesvav. That's really the, the, the whole Indian. Maishu Rabbeinu brought the Torah down from Shemayim. He didn't bring down the Torah. Hashem didn't write the Torah the night before Maishu Rabbeinu came up to Shemayim. The Torah was written before the world was created. Hashem looked into the Torah and he wrote, he, 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 he looked into the Torah and he built the world. Maishu Rabbeinu didn't become happy because he got the Torah. Maishu Rabbeinu's happiness allowed him to be the person to bring the Torah into the world. Adar is not a, a month of happiness because Purim happened in the month of Adar. Purim happened in the month of Adar because Adar is the day, is the month of Simcha. So all of these things, what we think on the outside is the cause, is really the, is really the effect. The cause to all of it is Tyra. Tyra is synonymous with Simcha. Because Tyre is the one thing that has the capacity to unify everything that exists in this world. Everything that exists in this world can become aligned through Tyre. So you'll tell me, that's not my experience. You'll tell me that I really want to eat lobster and it says in the Tyre not to eat lobster. You'll tell me that you really you have to keep Shabbos and you don't want to keep Shabbos. You'll tell me this, you'll tell me that. You'll tell me a million different things of how the terror brings fragmentation to your life. And I'll say to you, of course, we're all human beings. I understand. I get it. It's not that we are, we, it's not that we are uh, frail. It's not our frailty that makes the terror so hard for us to grasp. It's the other way around. And this is really what everything that we're saying, because we're going to get, obviously, if you, if you follow what I'm doing, I'm trying to show how the world is all upside down. Whatever we think the cause is, that's the effect. It's the whole Indian of an apachu, right? Everything has to be turned inside out. It's Vidavka, the things that we struggle with, where, where we think we are therefore terrible, like the terror, the terror fragments. Look around at all the different you know, denominations of Jews, and you see, oh, the Lipsters don't talk to the Hasidish. And the Lakewood is not going to be Meshadach with the, the Clevelanders and the, and, the, and the New Square won't talk to, to Satmer. And to, this one won't talk to this one and this one over here and this one with them. So it looks, you look around the world and all you see is fragmentation wherever you go. And it's, and, it's, and it's very sad and it's very disheartening. But the only reason why you see so much fragmentation, the only reason why there is so much fragmentation the only reason why fragmentation hurts so much is because it's paradoxically all a preparation for unification. Purim is the one day a year that everything gets flipped on its head. Purim is the one day a year where we get a chance to say, you know, 
364 days of the year or 355 days of the, of the lunar calendar, I walk around convinced that all my frailties mean that I messed up, that all the things that bother me hurt, that all the darkness in the world is real and all the loneliness is what I deserve. On Purim, everything gets twisted on its head. On Purim, there's a revelation that all that you thought was lost is actually the deepest, deepest seed planted in the deepest, deepest ground for the biggest, biggest tree to ever grow out of. And that which you think you are going to be hung by the eight sadas, you think you're going to be hung by the eight sadas, meaning you think you're going to be hung by all your averas, right? You think you're going to die and show up in hell and show up in heaven, they're going to send you straight down to hell and they're going to bury you with every avera you ever did. The Svarim explained that you know what happened on the tree that's Gavaya Hamishim Ama, the tree that's, that Haman prepared, it's, it stands 50 feet in the air. The Svarim explained, what does it mean? Why did Haman's son give him an etzah to hang Mordechai on a tree? What, what did that mean? So as far as I'm explaining, what, what Haman's son was saying to, 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 to Haman was, the Jews suffered from the first original sin. Adam ate from the Eitz Adas. Let's take Mordechai and hang Mordechai in the Eitz Adas. Let's take all the Jews, let's take all of them and hang them on all their averas. That's, that, that's the epitomeus of what he, what he tried to say. And Haman said, yes, yes, we're going to take all that you failed in life, all that's broken about you, we're going to hang it up for the world to see, and you're going to die by that. And instead, what happens? Haman and all of his children get hung for everyone to see. Why? That, that was Esther, that's what Esther said. Hang Haman up in the street, and everybody should see Haman, Haman and his children hanging in the street. In other words, what Esther was saying is, you thought that on the Eitz Hadas, all you, you and all of your Averis are going to hang, and you're going to die by that, and you're going to burn in hell by that. It's actually the exact opposite. All of your Averis are going to be hung on the tree. All that is evil in the world is going to be hung on the tree. Not you. You're not going to hang on the tree. Everybody's going to walk by, in other words, not in an embarrassing way, in the exact opposite of an embarrassing way. We're going to take all your averes, we're going to hang them on a tree, and we're going to show the world this is what it means to be a human being. This is what human frailty looks like. You thought that you're going, to be, you're going to be hung in shame. No, we're hanging you out in celebration. We're letting you recognize that that which is broken about you is that which is most, most beautiful about you. We're going to take the 10, the 10 sons of Haman, which this farm explained are the 10 klipas, Right? The number 10, we've we mentioned here a bunch of times, have to do with the 10 spheres, the 10 midos of Hashem, the 10 basic uh, uh, energies that exist in this world that, of course, have klipos around them, have the capacity for brokenness around them. We take the 10 sons of Haman that have to do with the 10 klipos, the 10 sources of all evil in the world, and we hang them up in the tree where everybody could walk by and see them. You know, they weren't, they weren't killed by hanging. They were killed the day before. They were killed on Tainus Esther. Akashverish came back from the party and he killed Haman and his sons. The next day they were hung on a tree. They were not killed by hanging. They were hung the next day on a tree. Why were they hung? For everyone to see. For everyone to see. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we that all of us should hang our dirty laundry out the window. But it means for ourselves, simcha precedes everything. Simcha is the nakuda of the Rabbeinu Shalaylam. It's the, it's, it's the kernel that of God that is written down into words that makes Hashem attainable. It makes Hashem attainable. Hashem is is called is called the it, it's there's a machlekes about this. If he's called, if we could call Hashem Ein Sof, you can't call Hashem Ein Sof. Ein Sof is a finite definition. Ein Sof means infinity. You can't call God inf infinite. God is not infinite. God is beyond infinite. God is beyond the beyond of infinite. There's no, there's, there's no capacity. There's no tangibility to it. But it comes time for Hashem wanting to express himself. And so he figures out a way to conceal himself in the Torah. That is what Simcha is. My capacity to do a mitzvah, my capacity to do something a little bitter, a little be better for myself, my capacity for do something one tiny bit step towards healing myself, that can only come from simcha. The opposite of simcha is destruction. That's Haman. Haman's whole Indian in life was to try to destroy simcha. He saw Moshe died on Zion Adar, he said, okay, it must be a sad day. We can strike. It's Amalek. Amalek is Gematria Safek. Safek is self-doubt, fragmentation, brokenness. You can't do it. You can't pull the trigger. You're going to be inhibited somehow. That's the whole world of Amalek. The whole world of Amalek is the, 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 the belief that, no, you really can't. No, you really can't. Simcha is the capacity to recognize that there's nothing off limits. Mamish, nothing off limits. So that's really, really a hakdama. Oh, well, we have, so we have to go back a moment, just a moment. So if Hashem gives me the Torah and I take the Torah, then the give and take is a transaction. It's just a transaction. Hashem gives me, it's an act of assertion. I take, it's an act of assertion. Hashem gives because he wants to give. That's what he wants to do. And he puts his, his desire, his will onto me. He holds the mountain over my head and he says, you have to do it. And I take, I take means I take my, I have my own agenda. What I do with it, I don't know, I'll figure it out. This really is a whole other schmooze about, about how, how much we abuse spirituality and how much we abuse God. That's a whole different, a whole different conversation. I'm, I'm thinking about that a lot. The degree to which we use God uh, for ourselves and in many ways create spirituality out of that which we need, which is very healthy and very good. But at what point is that called abuse? At what point are you taking God as opposed to what the whole Indian of Purim is, which is to receive from God, where God offers himself and we receive from him, open-hearted. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going because I, I, I wanted to really go into the into the Megillah, into something or a few things, but 
I wanted to talk about, and, and this, this all, it all connects. We'll just wrap up in a, in a few minutes, but the pivot of the whole story of Purim that everything relies on, it's the one thing that if it didn't happen, none of the Purim story could have ever happened. All the pieces of the story could work out and you could kind of move around, pull around, etc. There's one piece that Siddiquim say, there's one piece that if this didn't happen, the whole story of Purim couldn't happen. What is that? One second, where, is the, where are the words? It's, it's, in, it's in which parak? I'll tell you exactly where it is. It's in Parak Bey's Pasik Yud. Parak Bey's Pasik Yud. What happens? Esther is found. She's found by the by the uh, by the guards, and she's taken down to Akashverish. Esther Esther did not reveal. She didn't tell her nation or her or her birthplace. Because Mordechai told her not to tell. But first of all, it's very strange because Akashverish's first wife was Vashti and he married her only for the purpose of Yichus. That's, that's what all the Midrashim say. She came from royalty. Akashverish was a, was a stable boy. He, he didn't come from royalty. He married someone who was royal. And now in his second wife, he not just doesn't marry for Yichus, he doesn't even know who he's marrying. He marries for beauty, not Yichus. Esther did not tell where she came from. And, and she does that because Mordechai tells her not, not to tell. Now, what does that have to do with anything? So what? So there's many, many different Mepharshim that explain why. Why did, Esther, why did Mordechai tell Esther not to tell? But I'll peep Pashup shot. If Esther would have told Achashverosh that she was Jewish, Haman could never have said to Achashverosh, let's make a plan against the Jews. Never would have happened. The whole, the whole Jewish thing never, the whole Jewish thing would never, never come into play. Haman wouldn't be able to do that. Number one. Number two, had Esther revealed who she was later on, Meaning, let's say Esther hid it because she felt, you know, we're not close enough. When As we get closer in, in marriage, I'll, then I'll tell him. Then either Akashverosh would have killed her because he wouldn't want to have to deal with the, the consequences of everybody finding out that he was married to a Jew. It's like Hitler being married to a Jew. That wouldn't work. Or Akashverosh would have just told Haman, we're stopping the whole thing. Somehow, this wisdom of not telling who she was saved, became the whole story, became the whole story of, of Purim. That last moment, the day before the, the decree was supposed to happen, then she, sa she says, but she says it in such a dramatic way, etc., etc., etc. So what's, what's the shot in this Indian? It really, really goes back to understanding something about the neshama. And it's really, I think, the whole story of, of Purim. And it's the whole story of Simcha in our lives. And that is that Esther is the neshama. 
בדווקא הוומן, בדווקא the feminine energy, בדווקא the energy of receiving and not the energy of taking, right? Masculinity is an assertive energy, femininity is a receiving energy, not a passive energy, a receiving energy. To be makabel, that's the Indian of Esther. The Indian of the neshama is the Indian of, the Indian of Esther is the Indian of the neshama. The neshama comes down into this world and initially is completely hidden from us. The neshama does not reveal itself to us. We don't know our neshamas. We don't know them. We don't find them by studying them in books. We don't learn about them through teachers. We're not taught about them. It's one of those things that, excuse me, it's easier to talk about It's easier to talk about sex than it is to talk about the soul. I mean, I'm, I'm a therapist. I talk about it all day, so excuse me if that makes you blush and saying that out loud. It's easier to talk about money. It's easier to talk about shizokim. It's easier to talk about anything. But somehow to talk about the soul, we, we can't. And the reason we can't is because we don't know it. We don't know es am of es malatata. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know what the yichas of it is. We don't get it. And it's not because we're, we're, we're not supposed to get it. It's because it's really, it's really not gettable. It's not tangible. The neshama is not tangible. Ultimately, the entire story of the Megillah, the entire story of the Gullus, Megillah, is the revelation Gullus also has the same letters of Gimel and Lamed Gal to reveal the whole revelation of exile, the whole revelation of, the, of that which is hidden, the whole story of God turning out the lights, so to speak, is a very, very simple koldamamadaka of the soul revealing itself to me. It's what it's and and it's not really planned. We can't really plan for it. It's a story that that happens each and every one of us in our own life. It could be a last moment, you know, touchdown pass. It could be a last moment experience of some kind of off comment that someone says to us walking out of a Starbucks that changes our day. that therefore puts us in a better mood, that therefore triggers this and triggers that. And somehow two weeks later, because of some, that little, small, little smile, my whole life is different. It could be something dramatic. It could be being saved from your own demons. It could be being saved from a, a, an abusive relationship. It could be saved from shame, whatever addiction, whatever, whatever, whatever the story is for you in your life. Of that which haunts you, that which chases you, that which threatens you, the neshama will re- will reveal itself. And sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we don't find it. Sometimes we don't get it. But as we're rolling closer and closer to Mashiach, as we're getting closer and closer to to this the the story of what looks like an almost eradication of not just the Jewish people, but of, godliness in the world, of the divine in the world, 
an almost destruction of the Torah. It looks like life is headed in that direction. And it's looked like that more and more over the course of the last few hundred years. As we continue rolling along that way, there's going to be an Esther HaMalka. There's going to be this major massive explosion of the soul onto the scene. And it's happening in some way. It's happening in some way. I, I, I think I think my two Rebbeim, Ramesha Weinberger and Ramatul Zilber, are very much part of that, that revelation that's happening. But people are paying a lot more attention to what goes on inside. People pay, paying a lot more attention, not just to uh, the big and the beautiful, but the simple. I, I was sitting in a, in, a, in a discussion today with a group of therapists, and somebody said, yeah, we, we, we've evolved. We've evolved. Th therapy has, has gone through evolutions, and now the new cutting-edge stuff has to do with the mind-body connection, somatic experiencing. And I, I was thinking to myself, like, you know, I have a lot, a lot to gain by, by studying somatic interventions, like understanding your body. But the truth is, that's not, it's not called evolution. It's the exact opposite, you know? It's like learning to find God in your body. Like, that's much more basic than looking to find God in the clouds or looking to find God in all the things you need to yearn for. Sometimes finding my neshama in the most basic, basic way, finding Hashem in the most basic, basic way, not taking, but receiving, that has the possibility to bring about and reveal all of the happiness that exists in the world. All of the happiness that exists in, in the Torah, which is, which is what the whole world was built out of. The Torah, which is all about Simcha, it's all about alignment, it's all about connection, it's all about drawing heaven and earth together, not to kiss each other, but to be one, my body and my soul, myself and, and, the, and the world, me and Hashem, my dreams with my reality, my reality with my ideals, all of these things, all of these things are what Simcha is about. That's why Hashem chose Maishu Rabbeinu, because Maishu Rabbeinu's whole Indian life was to be Samech B'chalkai. That's why the story of Purim, which is all revolves around the simple, the simple, seemingly, you know, basic story of, of some woman we don't know much about. We don't know her story, right? She doesn't have a father or a mother. We don't really know where she comes from, but she comes from a place that's much, much higher and much, much deeper. Simcha is dependent on humility. Simcha is born in humility. It can only happen with humility. That's, that, that's uh, the, again, the whole story of Moshe Rabbeinu. But it's also the story of Esther Hamalka. And, it's, and it's, it's, the, it's the story of allowing a story to unfold and not needing to force it to unfold. I can search for God as much as I want. I should search for God for as much as I want. But Purim is the day where I don't search. Purim is the day that I sit, and wherever I am, I'm the Simcha, because Hashem is with me. Hashem is completely with me, whether I feel it or know it, 
whether I believe it or I don't believe it, it doesn't really, all these things are narishkeit, they don't really make a difference. On, on Yom Kippur, you need the intensity because you got to rev yourself up to connect to the deepest of the deep. On Purim, you don't need any intensity. On Purim, it's all there. It's just there. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a day that's just simple. And in its simplicity, it's beautiful and it's holy and it's happy and it connects to the Torah that existed all way before the world was created. It connects to, to life before the chait of the Eitzadas. It connects to, to that which is the simplest. And so we should be zaycha, all of us, this Purim, not to recommit our reception of Torah, but to open our hearts a little wider, to receive more, and to not be afraid to receive and not need to take. Good Shabbos, L'chaim, Afrelech and Purim. We'll see you soon.